welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining me we have Ian Scott. Ian is a consultant in intensive care at the Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. He's got a specialist interest in ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, and is the co-director of the service based out of the ARI. And he also flies with EMRS North. Ian, welcome. Many thanks for uh, coming on and chatting to us today. No, thanks for having me and uh, to talk about one of my kind of I guess, pet topics that I've uh, had for many years about kind of ECMO and hypothermia. So it's good to chat to you guys again about it. So I guess to kick off with, hypothermia is a pretty broad topic. We're chatting with a few folk over the course of, uh, of the, the months running up to winter. And really, I guess most of your hypothermia stuff is, is probably going to be amongst the more severe end. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think it depends how you classify. I think the Swiss Society of Mountain Medicine have a kind of five-point classification from mild through to essentially uh, severe and probably death being the fifth component of that. Uh, so I'm talking about the people in the severe group. These are people with core temperatures of probably less than sort of 28 degrees who are either becoming unconscious or unconscious. And at the bottom end of that scale with the people who are actually in cardiac arrest that have the potential to be rewarmed. So that's the kind of group that I'd be talking about today. These are really big, sick folk and often quite hard to unpick whether they've got any vital signs left or whether they're in cardiac arrest. Yeah, absolutely. These are people that um, either have a very low cardiac output state, uh, severely bradycardic with very little either electrical activity or actually a pulse to feel. So I think differentiating between who's in cardiac arrest and who's in low flow is probably not too important for people working in the pre-hospital field, but it's the recognition of someone that may have the potential to be rewarmed and actually have a good outcome. Now, from my background, you know, I always think of these guys as being cragfast on the side of a, of a big hill in the middle of winter. But the, the data seems to suggest that there's also a fair amount of folk getting pissed and, and not quite making it home or people who are medically unwell as the underlying cause of their hypothermia. Yeah, absolutely. I think that brings nicely on to how I sort of otherwise classify hypothermia into kind of three groups from the exposure group, which you mentioned just then, to the ones submerged like under water, and then ones that are involved in avalanches. And the group that you mentioned, the ones that I'd regard the exposure, they're the ones that have the best outcome. They get cold slowly, their brain is maintained to have an oxygen supply, and then when they do have a cardiac arrest, they have a very low metabolic rate at the time and therefore have you know, good protection from their brain if, if they do have a cardiac arrest and then have the best chance of being rewarmed. So it's a good way to think about hypothermia when you're trying to work out whether someone's going to have a good outcome or who to consider for rewarming. The group that you mentioned, the people getting pissed on a Friday night and then not quite making it home and then being found the next morning apparently dead, are actually the group that may well actually do the best. And when they're found, they may be in a low cardiac output state and be very difficult to distinguish between someone who's alive and someone who's not. So they're the people that actually do the best. The ones that all the kind of, I guess, sexy group in terms of the avalanche ones where you hear about mountain rescues involved, they're the ones that have the probably the worst 
outcome from hypothermia. Most of these people have suffered severe trauma and that's the reason why they've died, not because they've become hypothermic. They've just become cold because they've died from their trauma, but are found in an avalanche. And they're the ones with the worst outcome. And then you've got the group who are submerged. They're the ones who are found head underwater. And it's important to differentiate between, between that, being head under and their head not being under. Because if their head's underwater, then the water has to be actually fairly cold for them to have any form of survival benefit. So if the water temperature is less than six degrees, you've probably got up to about 90 minutes to get someone out and they may well be salvageable. Uh, if the water temperature is greater than six degrees, then uh, you've only got about 30 minutes from starting your search to actually be able to rescue that person. And that's very useful when you're trying to decide on when you should carry on a search and when you maybe should suspend it. And interestingly enough, everyone thinks the sea around the UK is actually cold, but it's very rarely below six degrees. So people pulled out of the ocean or the seas around the UK often, again, probably haven't died from hypothermia, but from asphyxia. But in inland water within Scotland, particularly, locks and rivers and things are often below six degrees for a large part of the year. And those group of people may benefit more for more aggressive rewarming strategies. So the old adage that you're not dead until you're warm and dead, does that still hang true? Probably not completely, because I think we can do some way of trying to differentiate up between groups. And that's where I was mentioning about the type. So splitting into those three groups, we just take them individually. If you've got a submersion, so that's head under, it's important to try and work out the time the person was last seen um, and have a rough idea of the water temperature. And then if they're pulled out within 30 minutes, then in any water in cardiac arrest, then they may well benefit from being attempted to be rewarmed. If they've been found extremely over a long period of time, they've definitely been underwater for more than 30 minutes and the water temperature is definitely not less than six degrees. And I think you can probably say that person is not going to be a survivor. And if you're a bit uncertain, then if you use about 90 minutes, because 90 minutes is the cutoff, no one survived longer than that in ice cold water. So if someone's found head under and you've found them in an area that you've been searching for for 90 minutes, then again, you can say that person is uh, probably going to be a non-survivor and not necessarily transport that person with the risk involved in that to a centre to be rewarmed. If we would use that as part of our prognostication to decide whether or not we would instigate rewarming on someone, that history is very important. And the same, we take avalanche victims as well. You can use a degree of initial information to try and decide whether or not someone should be moved to be rewarmed. And clinically, initially, if they've got signs of significant trauma, particularly around their head, in the pre-hospital field, then I think that's a good indicator to say that that person shouldn't be moved to be rewarmed. If their body is completely frozen, so that means you really can't move them at all or compress their chest, then again, that's a, probably a sign not to continue to be rewarmed and not to transport to ourselves. But again, we'll be also be happy to discuss these. But with avalanches, there's a few kind of numbers that are useful to know about. So knowing the length of burial is useful. If the airway is clearly obstructed with snow or ice, snow or ice impacted into the airway, then again, that person is unlikely to have died of hypothermia and it's more likely to have asphyxiated. 
again, that's very difficult to tell. I think speaking to certain some of the mountain rescue people, they find that's actually sometimes difficult to be 100% certain about that. But if you can also find out what their electric activity is, that can be helpful. So if they're asystolic and they've been buried for less than 60 minutes, then their arrest is unlikely to be due to hypothermia. And that's because as you cool down physiologically, what happens to you is your body initially becomes more and more bradycardic and then eventually asystolic. But asystole doesn't occur in hypothermia until your temperature is probably less than about 24 degrees. So you can't cool down that quickly within 60 minutes. It's a bit like taking a putting a big chunk of meat in the freezer if you went back after an hour, it probably wouldn't be that frozen. And that's exactly the same adage in a human. If they've just cooled down from surface cooling, they won't have got cold enough to be at 20, you know, to 23 degrees within an hour. So I think in the guidelines from some of the mountain rescue societies suggest that burial less than 60 minutes asystolic, then it's not caused by um, hypothermia and you would just go down a normal kind of CPR algorithm and then if they didn't have any response to that uh, confirm death then we can use a little bit extra in terms of blood test monitoring when you come to hospital or occasionally if teams like EMRS may be able to do in the field and that's looking at people's potassium which can be helpful to prognosticate in hypothermic patients particularly in avalanche groups so it's been shown that the potassium when you get cold, that drives the potassium into the cells. So your potassium is essentially should be low or certainly normal. If potassium is high, that's an indicator that you've had cell death and it's leaked out, which occurs when you've had asphyxia. So if you measure someone's potassium in a hypothermic patient and it's high, we use a cutoff for avalanche of eight millimoles per liter. Don't worry about the figure too much, but we can then use that to decide we should abandon resuscitation and go no further. So again, that's not something you might have in the pre-hospital field, but when they get to hospital, we can monitor that, or you might be able to do that in a pre-hospital setting with something like EMRS carry some equipment that would allow you to, to measure that. And really the last group, the exposure group, are probably the ones who've got the least amount of information to get. If someone's just found out lying outside, most of the signs of normal death, like dilated pupils, all these type of things, there don't mean that you're dead necessarily. Hypothermia can mimic a lot of the core signs of like brainstem death, so they're not useful at all. So in those groups that people just found outside, it's definitely worth having a chat with either ourselves or one of the other centres might be able to offer rewarming to discuss that group because they're probably the ones that have the best chance and we'll probably be more aggressive about putting them on and seeing what happens. So you mentioned in amongst there looking at electrical activity and it's one of the things that we talk about a lot on, on the rescue team in terms of, of handling these patients. Why do they need to be handled so gently? So your myocardium becomes sort of irritable as it gets cold and that's probably due to different electrolytes sitting on each side of your cell and they get imbalanced essentially as a bit mentioned about potassium getting pushed into the into the cells that affects the balance across the, the cell membrane and that can leave it kind of what we describe as kind of myocardial irritability and that can give you kind of strange uh, rhythms so often when you're just a little bit cold 
you become bradycardic. But you can go into a rhythm called like atrial fibrillation. So it's not uncommon to have people around about kind of 28 degrees to kind of like 30 degrees going into AF. And that's their rhythm that they can kind of flip into. And that's not so bad because most people can maintain a cardiac output with that. But also when the myocardial is irritable, you can also get other arrhythmias, particularly like ventricular fibrillation, which in hypothermia occurs between about 24 and 28 degrees. And once you go into VF, like any form of VF, you don't have any cardiac output. So obviously you're not getting any movement of blood around the body, and then you're going to starve cells of oxygen eventually. Even if you recognize someone like putting AED on in that setting and you attempt to defibrillate them, often you won't get them back into a sinus rhythm. They'll just stay in refractory VF and you'll need to rewarm them before you can get them out of that. If you have the ability to look at someone's ECG, it is very helpful because I think it does give you some prognostication. If someone is hypothermic and in VF, then their chance of probably being successfully rewarmed is probably higher than someone who is in who's asystolic unless they've been exposed and got very, very cold. So most people are in sort of refractory VF and you rewarm them just over 30 degrees and you'll find that one shock will just convert them back into sinus rhythm. Whereas when they're below sort of 30 degrees, multiple shocks will have no effect. And that's why the ALS guidelines suggest that you should, you know, attempt defibrillation, but not attempt multiple defibrillation in people who are cold, but it just be unsuccessful. And in terms of that ALS management, I remember that they, they increased the dose intervals for drugs. Is there any evidence that that has any real impact or is that just theoretical? So the reason for, again, the drugs having very little effect, things like adrenaline and things, and the reason partly they suggest to change the dosing regime slightly is just so you don't have a huge amount of adrenaline basically sitting intravascularly that when you do rewarm someone, they then you've got a huge amount of adrenaline that can have a detrimental effect and it really has very little effect when you're cold just because the way the drug works on various receptors, those receptors just don't work when you're cold. So just injecting essentially every couple of minutes another milligram of adrenaline will have no effect because the cells are all cold and don't function correctly. But the downside to that is when you do rewarm someone that you then could have a huge amount of adrenaline which can affect in terms of cardiovascular stability and it's not I wouldn't suggest the end of the world if that happens if people just follow their normal algorithm they get given adrenaline. I don't think you'd be able to deal with that situation when you get rewarmed, but it's not ideal. It's unlikely to have any effect just because the way the beta receptors work, they just don't really function when they're they're cold. So that's why it doesn't have any effect. So there is, there is sound kind of physiological basis why giving it doesn't make any difference. Okay. So you've mentioned that the group with sort of potentially the best outcome are your drunks who have fallen over and, and slowly cooled. If we were to kind of walk through a case just so we can pick out the elements about selection, about the pre-hospital phase of that to begin with, I guess treble nine comes in for, for somebody who's not come home and the police have found them in the field apparently dead. Your, your basics responder gets tasked to that job. What are the things that we should be looking for off the bat? So initially it's you know, normal, good patient or seen safety makes it safe for you to be in that environment, particularly if it's uh, cold and if you're going into anywhere near water and things to make certain you're seen safety, not putting yourself at risk or anyone else. And then once you feel the patient is in a, you know, a safe location or as safe as it can be, in terms of good patient assessment initially, like, you know, is the airway, is it open, is there anything obstructing that? 
Uh, are there any obvious injuries to the patient? You know, have they just literally just collapsed there or were they involved in an assault or something else that could be have a reason? So you still want to go through a normal, good patient assessment because that information will be useful when it gets passed to ourselves about making a decision about whether we should transport someone free warming. And then it's really just going through your sort of basic airway breathing circulation. But probably spending a little bit more time on each of those elements to see whether or not someone is actually just a very low flow state, so have a very slow respiratory rate, uh, spend a bit more time assessing that. And then again, cardiovascularly, you're probably going to spend a bit more time trying to determine whether they do have any cardiac output. But if you're uncertain, I think you really just need to start CPR as you would normally. And again, trying to manage the airway as best you can. There's lots of concern about whether or not if you did something that you could trigger someone to have a cardiac arrest. And while that may be so, probably the more important thing is it's providing good quality resuscitation. So that's trying to maintain the airway, provide oxygen. And if you're uncertain, start doing some CPR. If you're a basic responder and you've got an AED, particularly if it's got a screen on it, then you may be able to get a bit of information about is there any underlying electrical activity. And again, spend a little bit more time looking for that because it may be there are very few complexes so it may look like the patient is asystolic but may just have a severe bradycardia so obviously in a small screen you're not going to see many complexes so uh, having been switched on and, and and listened to the the podcast series our basic responder decides that they're going to have a chat with with somebody like yourself and get some expert advice in terms of logistics how how can we get hold of you what's the kind of route for seeking advice so probably the first route is obviously to speak to one of the emrs clinicians both either in the east or west that's probably the first port of call because a lot of them will have some experience they may well need to be involved in attempted retrieval in terms of getting them to ourselves here or potentially another center who could offer ecpr so if they just want some advice that's probably the first port of call to go through most of those people either then or the ambulance service SSD would have contact details for ARI and again getting put through to either the emergency department or to intensive care by themselves you may get some further advice and often my colleagues and things often call me up or something and ask a bit more specific about whether someone would be for rewarming because it's, it's not that common to see this and then deciding who you're going to rewarm or not so it's still a bit of an ad hoc in terms of arrangement about speaking to someone and getting the information that you need but first instance I would say is going through the ambulance service and getting put through to one of the EMRS teams because they will be able to provide some advice and they will probably need to be linked into it anyway in terms of logistics of transporting a patient to the centre um, and then they would probably be able to find some further advice so EMRS have some protocols and things there's also some calculators to try and help with prognostication. So I won't go into that, but there is a prognosticator calculator called the HOPE score, which can again be helpful or may be helpful in terms of deciding who to move to. Basic responder through the ambulance service to SSD and then them to one of the EMRS teams, I would suggest is the best protocol to decide whether or not someone should be rewarmed. Now, you mentioned eCPR there. It's possibly not a term that, that many folk will be familiar with. Yeah, sorry. So eCPR is really just using an extracorporeal circulation to provide both, in this instance, 
uh, respiratory and cardiovascular support until you can restart the heart essentially so that's what ECPR is it's basically people have been trying to use uh, ECMO to have some form of support while you try and work out one is either what's wrong with the heart and whether it's fixable and whether you can bridge them either to a recovery or in some instances bridge them for to some other form of intervention that maybe if someone's had a heart attack to PCI for example to fix the blockage in their blood vessel to then hopefully recover and they're the kind of main indications and certainly other can be used and other things like uh, people with various toxicology type things when they've had effects on their heart the drug and you just wait until the drug wears off and in using it in hypothermia the advantage is that it allows you to provide oxygenation and essentially some blood flow while the body rewarms and then the heart can restart by itself or with maybe a defibrillation if it goes into vf and then you can also continue to provide support um, while the heart and the lungs recover from the hypothermic episode and without sort of disappearing into into the really technical stuff, uh, roughly how does, does ECMO work and, and what's the difference between ECMO and bypass, which I imagine most people will be slightly more familiar with? Yeah, so ECMO is actually you know relatively simple. It's essentially a pump. So it has a specialised pump and the advantage of a ECMO over cardiopulmonary bypass, traditionally maybe not so more these days, is actually the pump technology in the sense that the pump doesn't damage the blood cells. So a traditional cardiopulmonary bypass machine would have things like rollable uh, pumps, and that would cause damage to the blood cells eventually, so you couldn't provide long-term support. Whereas ECMO, most of the pumps work by having these kind of propellers that sort of hover in a magnetic field. So they don't have any interface or bearings uh, that can damage the blood. So you have a pump, then you have an oxygenator, which is essentially just a large surface area that allows gas on one side and blood on the other side very much like your lung and oxygen and carbon dioxide can diffuse across that membrane so you provide oxygenation and carbon dioxide removal then you just need some pipes to get it either out of the body and then back into the body and the pipes are just you know larger than most lines you put in so for this sort of thing for ecpr you'd probably put a in an adult a line in a femoral vein about 23 french so a reasonably large sort of chest drain size pipe that would take the blood out of the idc you put a slightly smaller pipe into an artery usually again the femoral artery which would pump the blood back in again so essentially it's bypassing the heart and the lungs and providing blood flow to the body and then presumably you have the option to to rewarm or to add medications or anything else to the to the blood en route through that system yeah, so basically, so to rewarm it, basically the oxygenator has also got a, essentially a water bath system that kind of surrounds it so you can control the temperature very, very tightly. So in hypothermia, you could set the temperature to be initially similar to what their body temperature is and then eventually you know, set a temperature gradient between whatever the patient is. For example, if they were 20 degrees, you would set it to maybe like five degrees above the patient to allow a rewarming rate of somewhere between four to eight uh, degrees an hour. And then obviously as they get warmer, you can just increase the rate of the water bath essentially so that the temperature will come up in the patient. Fantastic. So uh, in terms of the kind of the Scottish experience with rewarming cold folk, are there any particular case studies that are useful to, to draw lessons from? I've seen a, a number of cases. I just mentioned there was one in the, I think Dumfries, uh, someone who was a, uh, 
basically, as you mentioned earlier, got pissed the night before and didn't quite make it home and was moved to some colleagues in Edinburgh and they rewarmed the person. And essentially they were neurologically intact after being rewarmed and had a very good outcome. And that was again linked in through EMRS on the West team who were involved in that. So that's again, I think was found by a, a ambulance service and pre-hospital responder and then linked into the West EMRS team who then organized the movement of that patient to a center that could rewarm. Other examples, last year we had, I think there on the somewhere in Glencoe, there was a couple of walkers who were lost, benighted. And then the next day a search was continuing and EMRS West had been involved in that with Stephen Hearns who had actually gone up to Glencoe and Stephen contacted myself about the, the incident. And then one of the people were found essentially just walking around a bit confused, I think. And then his colleague was found in cardiac arrest. And the initial story that we got was that they'd been seen or earlier in that morning and then were found in cardiac arrest when Stephen contacted myself. It really fell into what we felt was that exposure group rather than an avalanche or anything like that group. So we felt the person may have been out overnight who then was subsequently found the next day uh, in cardiac arrest. So that patient had CPR started and were transferred I think rendezvoused with EMRS team who then placed them onto an automatic CPR device. I think it was the autopulse and then spoke to ourselves in Aberdeen and then flew them across with one of the SAR uh, helicopters to Aberdeen. And then we were, because we had a bit of time to get set up, we were waiting for them in our research bay with uh, one of my colleagues so that when they came in, we were able to rapidly Start the process would happen in the hospital and just give you an idea what that involves is the A&E team in Aberdeen tend to carry on running the arrest making certain the airway um, is being secured and trying to get other form of IV access the ECMO team work a little bit separately to that we basically concentrate on getting access to a femoral vein and a femoral artery put some sheaths into there once you've got some sheaths in we take a blood sample and look at the potassium to give us a bit more prognostication and then use that with a history that we've got to decide whether or not we're going to go on and actually place them onto ECMO. So the potassium, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was relatively low in this patient. And then with the history we'd gotten from EMRS from the ground, we felt it was worth to try and rewarm them. So we put some guide wires in to the femoral artery and femoral vein and dilate them up and then put in these cannula. And then it's a case of just connecting it to the circuit and then going on to ECMO. And then the blood sort of sucked out through the pump, pushed through the oxygenator, and then back into the body. So once we're established on ECMO, then we've got a bit of time to do a bit more finding out information. So we started to rewarm the patient. And then we try and get other lines in, like arterial lines, so we can monitor the blood pressure. Because obviously they don't have a pulsatile blood pressure, they just have a continuous flow and we get central temperature monitoring that we try and monitor their temperature in their esophagus because things like rectal temperature and things are not are useful sometimes in the rewarming phase to try and make certain the bodies rewarming roughly all together. But if someone wants to measure a rectal temperature, that can be misleading in the pre-hospital setting because bits of the body cool down at different rates. So we're really concentrating on central temperature. Then we rewarm the patient and then once they get above kind of 30 odd degrees, and if they go into VF, we shock them out of that. And this gentleman, we did a CT scan on. Unfortunately, that showed that he looked like he had a, a hypoxic brain injury. 
So I think we carried on support for you know a few hours while we just got a bit more information and see what happened. He appeared to be having seizures, so we withdrew care. But it really highlighted how well the whole system actually worked from initially EMRS getting contacted and then them transporting the patient to ourselves. Now, subsequently, we found out the following day with a bit more history and information speaking to people that the patient was actually found with their head buried. So that probably fits you with the person having asphyxiating and then just becoming cold. That's why all the elements are so important to get the pre-hospital story and then link into the other information. But if there's any uncertainty, then you kind of err on the side of rewarming people. And often you get a bit of an idea fairly quickly whether they're going to survive or not, um, because with things like additional imaging that we can get, and then we can see in the first kind of 24 hours if there's a neurological recovery. Even if they need continuous support with the ECMO, we'd probably get an idea. So it's not going into a long period of support before we'd realise whether someone might have you know, potential neurological recovery. So that kind of, I guess, highlights how it's useful to try and link in to other services to actually you've got to figure out how you're actually going to get the patient from the pre-hospital site to ourselves in Aberdeen or the other centre that does ECPR is Edinburgh so colleagues down there can be contacted so again it's logistical working out where's the closest place where's the one that's going to be able to offer it so again that's why it's worth going through the specialist service desk because they can make some of those phone calls for you. Brilliant. No, that's that's really interesting. And the message that went round the mountain rescue community has always been that you guys are keen and interested to to gather some data as much as anything. So you were quite enthusiastic to hear about cases and discuss cases. Is is that still ringing true? Yeah. So I think I've had uh, over the couple of when I started. My brother's in just a disclaimer. It's in the Cairngorm mountain rescue team. So partly where this started from and we were keen climbers and when we were younger not so much these days so um there's a bit of self-invested interest to make certain that if you got stuck in the hills someone could save you so yes we do try and have a conversations and i've met you know, various rescue teams over the years to try and discuss like um how this could work as always there's always going to be a degree of ad hoc nature to it because the type of group of patients it is and it's very small numbers and how it fits in with you know what the hospital is doing as well at the time so that kind of brings on to the ECMO service in Aberdeen and we're predominantly a respiratory ECMO service so that's what we specialize in is respiratory ECMO with people with severe respiratory failure and I guess tagged on to that we've done a bit of ECPR for some patients so and that's where this fits into so it's kind of tagged on to the side of our other service so obviously if our other service is extremely busy then this would have a, like the moment we kind of suspended our ECPR program in the COVID period, just while we managed that. So again, that's why it's worth giving us a call and speaking to us before moving a patient, just in case logistically we couldn't offer it that day. And then they may have to fall back on to either going to another centre, for example, like Edinburgh, or potentially being rewarmed in the kind of more traditional way of going to a centre that does have just cardiopulmonary bypass, because you can still warm people with cardiopulmonary bypass ECMO just gives you the, the ability to support someone a bit longer. So there was a, this really comes from Europe where they found that people who had been rewarmed by cardiopulmonary bypass appeared to do worse in the long term compared to the group that rewarmed with ECMO. And that's because hypothermia gives you probably a degree of lung injury and also cardiovascular dysfunction for 
you know, a longer period of time. So these group people getting really warm, looking like they were okay, coming off bypass, and then basically unsupportable conventionally because of either unable to ventilate someone because of lung injury or cardiovascularly. Uh, they develop kind of like a pulmonary edema, which is probably a bit of both from your heart and your lung, where the expert can just support people for a few days while that recovers, and then you can take them off support. Clearly an incredibly complex patient group to try and look after. Yeah, they have lots of other things going on with them when you start rewarming them. As I mentioned, electrolytes get moved around the body in a different way. So when you start rewarming them, that also then happens. Their cells get sort of leaky and they get sort of fluid shift happens. You end up sometimes giving them quite a bit of fluid initially in their resuscitation. And then once they're rewarmed, that can then go in their lungs. So they have kind of a bit of a they have sort of various coagulopathies as well. Uh, when you're cold, you tend to be coagulopathic and then as you rewarm. So trying to balance all these little elements together. But yeah, it's a sort of a complex, but if you get the right patient, they do they do well. And that's what's been shown certainly with a few cases in the UK, but also mainly from kind of Europe when they've rewarmed people and have people who have looked like they had no chance of surviving to actually recovering normally. And I think probably most of you might have heard about the Denmark bunch of school children who went out on kayaks or some sort of, I don't know what boats they're in, but anyway, they all got went in the water. I think all the whole group survived with good outcome pretty much. So that just shows that if you get the right patient group, they can do very well. And I guess a huge chunk of that is that early recognition that, that this isn't a futile exercise and even without signs of life, actually, this is a patient group to at the very least discuss having a having a real crack at. Yeah, absolutely. It's that initial recognition, as you say, if you don't do anything initially, they're definitely not going to, to survive. But it's thinking about it. It's, I've come across this person lying out in a field or something. Like, how did they get here? Or, okay, they're at the pub. They didn't quite make it home. So actually, they probably just cooled down slowly and they just you know, slipped into cardiac arrest or a low flow state. And they probably do really, really well, rather than just thinking that, you know, a dead body that's got dilated pupils that's definitely dead and sending them straight to the to the mortuary that person might actually be someone that could be salvageable. So it's just that kind of recognition. I think it's recognized in the kind of the mountains and things, but they're a very small group of people. It's more the people that are in the towns and villages and things who don't quite make it home from the night. There was a case of elderly in, in Grampian last year where I think she always used to go home and climb over a wall after going to the pub with her next door neighbor and she didn't quite make it home that night and she basically would have been in that exposure good group we did attempt to rewarm her even though she was kind of like 78 and again didn't have a good outcome for a number of reasons but you know that was probably worth a, a go because they were in the group that probably was going to do the best out of all of them so it's it's considering that that group brilliant um, one of the things we've been asking all of our presenters to do is to give three top tips to basics responders who might be responding to a cold patient or uh, sort of trying to unpick the, the complexities of, of dealing with severe hypothermia. What are your thoughts? So my top tips are, the first one is do basics really well. Just do what you're trained to do initially, good patient assessment and good ALS. That's what's going to get the majority of people is what they need. And then once that process has started, it's then to think, could this be hypothermia? And if you think that's a real possibility, then I guess my second tip is then making certain to contact early, something like 
SSD, go to SSD and say early, I think I've got a hypothermic patient. So that's my second tip is contact early to get some logistical support because if they are hypothermic, you can't do it by yourself. You're going to need help. And just to clarify, that's the specialist service desk through Ambulance Control Centre. Yeah, I think so. I think they're the best group to go to because they have the link to the EMRS teams. So you've got to think how you're going to get your patient from where they are to hospital. And then the third point is probably don't get disillusioned and don't give up, even if the outcome isn't good in the patient that you try and get rewarmed because there might only be one person in Scotland or one base responder that goes to you know, a patient that will have a good outcome. So if everyone always thinks about it, so don't give up would be my third tip. Keep going with resuscitation, do good quality resuscitation and allow people in the background to try and do the decision making for you. Ian, that's fantastic. Thanks very much for coming and unpicking what's a hugely complex topic and making it much more understandable. No, thanks very much for having me. Hopefully that was helpful. But that's kind of the nuts and bolts of it. Just try and keep it simple. Think about it and let other people in the background try and pick out whether or not they should be rewarmed. I think it's just thinking about it. That's the key thing, just having it in your mind. You know, one of those little things that pops up when you go to see a patient. Could it be hypothermia? Could they need some more advanced rewarming? That's brilliant. Thanks very much. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.